Thank you for downloading this Brum Radio podcast. For more podcasts, visit brumradio.com. Episode 5 with me, Laura Arismith, and my co-host, Sophie Johnson. Hello! Today we are talking about sizing and pricing. We are joined by the very talented photographer and influencer, Rosie Butcher. And I'd like to know is the fantastic charity, The Girls Network. Yeah, we've got a smashing episode for you today. Um, as always, please, please, please uh, rate, review, download, all that shebang you have to do with podcasting. Every little bit of support is absolutely fantastic. Thanks again for your continuous comments and shares it's so so exciting when um, we go on our instagram and someone's actually shared us that we don't already follow or know about um you know on top of you know all our all our existing followers it's really great that we're getting um that little bit further and people are starting to you know talk about us so um it really really helps us and makes us smile all the time so please continue to do so So here we go, this week's In The Know. And the subject this week is pricing and sizing. Um, the reason we have chosen to pick up on this subject this week is there's been a few things on social media, in the news to do with um, different pricing strategies of different brands and then also the, uh, the sizing debate around fashion as well. We thought it tied in quite nicely to the idea of, of product and buying and that kind of supply chain and, and looking at where things can go wrong um, and where things go right. So... I mean, I think the idea of sizing is going to be a whole other uh, topic as well at some point. Um, but yeah, let's let's get going. I mean, I'm going to start. I'm going to start and wind Laura up before we even. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. Because what's been in the news this week, and as soon as I saw it, uh, well, my friend Sam tagged it, it. Tagged me in it. Thank you, Sam. Um, and um, I sent it across to Laura. I was like, "This is what we've got to talk about this week." Because yet again. Boo-hoo are in the news and getting the blame for something that might not be their fault. It's away from sustainability this week. It's actually around pricing. So um, Boo-hoo have been in the news as... um, a customer, I assume, has picked up on the fact that they have the same product at two of their brands with different prices. So a customer had found a coat that was on Coast for um, a higher price, but it was also on Dorothy Perkins for a lower price. It was £34 more at Coast than it was at Boohoo. Okay, cool. Okay, so these things happen. Um, as someone um, that has worked in the fashion industry um, previously. I used to work for a brand called Love, um, a small kind of um, fast fashion brand down in London. Um, And when I say it was small, it wasn't small in terms of like sales and things like that, but it was like quite um, a small head office. So I would work in their showroom as their PR and social media person, um, but could also see other things that were going on around with like wholesale and orders and and the factories that they dealt with directly. It was kind of a very small, close-knit company and the fact that you knew everything about what was going on it was you know so first of all I just think that the media just love it again it goes back to the media just want to jump on it I'm going to call this the Justin Bieber effect because this is exactly what happens and I always go back to this example um when the media can't help but pick on one particular person so I love Justin Bieber always have always well yes I'm a complete loser but I'm proud of being that loser but there was just a point where Justin Bieber did everything wrong and that's what comes with being in the limelight and in the media and I get that but the press just love it once they've once they've 
cocked up once, that is it. The press will not leave that person or brand alone, okay? So, but in this instance, you've got to remember Boohoo here is the group. It's the overarching group like Arcadia. You know, it's not, we're not talking Boohoo, the brand. Um, And let's talk about some amazing things that Boohoo have done this year. They've saved half the high street. They have. They've brought out Debenhams. They've brought out Coast. They've brought out Karen Miller. Laura's pulling faces at me. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not pulling faces. I mean... I agree and I disagree. I think this is this is a tougher one for me to argue against because they've saved the high street to a certain extent, but they've not saved the high street in the fact that those stores have disappeared off the high street and they're now online. So it's not saving the high street. People have still lost their, lost their jobs. Um, the stores have gone. So, you know, I'm not saying, you know, they're the heroes because I don't feel like they are. And is it the fact that those stores were not doing well for a reason? You know, is it their product? Is it the fact that they weren't up to date and, and keeping relevant to, you know, and to their consumer demands? I agree with that because I think that's what COVID-19 has done. Yeah. It, it has sought out the, you know, the really strong brands. It's fight or week. flight. That's what it's done. Absolutely. But I think, oh, I said absolutely again. I said I wasn't going to say absolutely we in this podcast. Absolutely. Really sorry. We're going to be known for that, aren't we? Um, but yes, okay, okay, I'll take on board that the store thing, you know, people will have still lost jobs with, with yeah. closing stores. However, at least a big percentage of those jobs have been saved. So my, my point being here is, without going off on a tangent, Boohoo have done, Boohoo Group, not Boohoo.com, have done a lot of good a lot of good, but the press don't want to know that. It's always the same. They just want to put the brand under fire for every little thing. Um, so, you know, a lot of people read the Daily Mail and the BBC and take that in and then go, oh, you know what, boohoo are rubbish. And actually, as someone that works in fashion, I can break that down a little bit and I can, and me and you can understand how things like this happen and quite easily. And let me tell you, the factories can be sneaky as hell. Oh, of course, they've probably taken the labels out change the label exactly you think these are big brands so they're gonna so coast is gonna have had a buyer that's gone into that factory to that supplier and so has dorothy perkins so they've gone in and looked at that jacket that coast buyer is not going to know that that dorothy perkins buyer has been in and chosen the same jacket yeah it's cross-reference isn't it and i don't i think because boohoo have bought those brands they haven't had chance to do that yet. Yeah, and if you think about the buying cycle as well, those coats may have been brought and sourced well before Boohoo even brought them out. Yeah, it's re- it's is really difficult because I look at high price items and I would like to think they are more expensive because they're better quality, the materials probably more ethical, they were sourced better. Um manufacturers were had a fairer wage but then now this has come out i'm like oh god is that true is that not the case but i think this is not a shock this idea is not a shock like there's been rumors say for example you know Topshop joni jeans versus george astor's jeans apparently they're made in the same factories from the same fabric yeah they are so we know that and we love that as well yeah exactly we love that we love the fact that actually but let's instead of paying 36 quid for some Topshop joni jeans we can actually go to asda and pay like 14 quid but it will be a different fit though it would be the same denim but it would be a different style and they said that I read about um, the Primark Foundation as well, and I've used it, it's really good. Um, and they say that that Primark Foundation is made in the same factory with the same things that Estée Lauder double wears. Yeah. 
So this is not a shock, but again, it's it's media framing, and it's about the media jumping on anything that Boohoo Group will do wrong. They're just in the public, though. They've made a huge decision to buy certain brands. So, of course, they are being watched, heavily watched. Yeah. So, And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, we spoken earlier about um, the whole factory issue with the products and people that are being fa- paid fairly and blah, blah, blah. It's good that they're being watched. And I think if you own a certain percentage of the high street, you need to be not scrutinised, but just... I guess people to to watch you and find out how are you dealing with things because they're a big part of the market. Yeah, they are, and and yeah, I completely understand that. But I think the media just needs to just stop. Like, there's there's blaming other places sometimes. It's not as simple as this is Boohoo's fault. It's it's not. This coat might have been bought six months ago. This coat might have been bought twelve months ago, depending on the you know the 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 buying cycle. You know, a brand like Coast aren't fast fashion, so they won't be buying quick in like six week, eight week, probably not even six months. They'll be buying well ahead of time as a premium brand. So it might just be that they had it like months and months and months before mm. the factories themselves cut out the labels. Sometimes the Boohoo are not going to be able to track and trace every. God, I sound like Boris Johnson. Um, track and trace <laughs> every single product it's just not going to be possible but they should be able to later down the line they should be able to yeah. cross reference because they're going to have to like I've said before audit their suppliers and I imagine at the moment they're getting all the heads of they're sitting down together and they're saying right we've got I don't know a thousand suppliers we can minimise this and reduce it down to say 500 yeah. and work better and therefore they can audit their suppliers more efficiently. So they are going to do that. And yeah, and there's a piece of work to be done. There's absolutely yeah. a piece of work to be done. Absolutely. Um, absolutely <laughs> a piece of work to be done. Um, but that comes with time. They have taken on a lot of brands and saved a lot of jobs and done a lot of good in my eyes. Um, so we'll see where that goes. And I think this leads us uh, really nicely onto kind of the second part of, of our In The Know this week around sizing, because I think that sometimes does come down to supply, manufacturer, the top type of brand that you buy into um this week um as well i saw um i followed danny armstrong on social media and she was talking about the fact uh, uh just around sizing and the fact that she i mean she's tiny she's got an amazing figure like uh, well she had post uh, pre-baby and then post-baby she's looking absolutely incredible um and she is wearing in this photo a size 14 pair of zara jeans yeah um God knows she is not a size 14. No way in hell is she a size 14. But I think this brings the whole thing up is what is a size 14? Because brands vary. Uh, we were talking just before we started about the fact that um, I, my wedding dress is a size 16. I've had to order a size 16. Um, I've, I've lost half a stone since then, so I'm sure, you know, it'll be fitted. But, but there's nothing know. wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a size 14, being a size 16. No, no. Our point is, is that stores aren't consistent with sizing. I mean, shopping for clothes is already full of tough choices. Um, You know, what's in fashion at the moment? Can I afford this? Do I need this? Is this dress too extra? And the answer is always no. (laughs) Um, And then throw in, is this going to be, you know, it's just all too overwhelming. And one thing that should always be certain is your size in every store, yet they're not. And this is the problem. It's not consistent across the board. No, definitely. Um, I mean, from my buying experience... Um, sometimes I'm a size 8, 10, 12. It yeah, can really same, vary. same. But then actually I don't mind. Like sometimes I do look at certain product and I go larger for a reason and I'm starting to feel 
no shame in that. Like sometimes I look, you know, an oversized jumper or hoodie or something like that. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm probably, now I've lost my weight, I'm probably a, a good size 10 and I'm really, really happy with that. Um, but I will purposely buy size 12s and 14s because of that fit. So I think mm. sometimes it's, it's about how you want it to fit you as well. Do you remember in 2009 there was an image that went viral and it was a woman that had posted seven pairs of jeans highlighting the lack of consistency in clothing sizes? I mean, are brands using the same size fit models across the board? There is nobody regulating sizing. You know, you will contact modelling agencies and ask for a size 10 fit model, but their size... 10 fit model could be different to another brand size 10 fit model so where's the consistency here well i just don't know maybe i'm just being really naive why is it not as simple as measurements we have an amazing thing called a tape measure why is a size 10 waist not x number i know what i don't it's it's actually a really recent thing so if you go back i don't know post world war one we didn't have clothing sizes. Clothing sizing was all about making your own clothes, you know? You had everything made yourself, or if you could afford it, you'd have a tailor. Then World War One happened, and there was a big boom in um, people trying to manufacture cheap clothing. So then that happened, and then after that, sizing went on your age. So if you were... No way! Yeah, if you were, if you were age 14, you would have size 14 clothes. If you were age 16, you'd be, have size oh, 16 right, clothes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if you're a woman, your clothing was done on your chest size. Oh, wow. So if you were a 32 double D, you'd wear a 32 double D dress. And it wasn't until the late 50s and 60s that sizing started to come in. Um... I think it was something like Marilyn Monroe was a size 12, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. But size 0 to 4, or maybe 6, wasn't around. Mm-hmm. So it started at like 8, 10, 12, blah, 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 blah. So she was seen bigger than she actually was. Um, and then like rules and regulations came into place. I think it was like 60s, 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, sizing's, sizing wasn't really apparent. So it's still quite a new thing. So I just feel that there isn't anybody regulating these sizes and something needs to be done here to move this forward because there's so many things. So many times I've gone into a store. I remember when I was at university, I won't name the brand, but um, at university... Name them. I was a very... (laughs) Name and shame. I was a size eight and I went into a high street brand and I tried on some of their jeans and I had to try on the size 14. Not not a bad thing, all... every size, not shaming anything. But to go from an 8 to a 14, I was like, well, this just seems weird. So I emailed their head office and I said, um, I don't think your sizings are consistent. And they they replied and said, we are not a UK brand and UK women are naturally larger. Wow. And I was just like, but that it shouldn't matter about a, a, na- a nation being larger. It should matter that your sizes are consistent across the board with every other high street store. Um And I was talking to my best friend about this last night. She is a buyer for COS. And she said something really interesting to me. Um, And she said that she doesn't know if this is a universal thing, but um, the Asia market for COS offer a specialised fit that is tailored to their customer with shorter lengths. Because obviously Asian people are naturally, the Asia market are naturally shorter than us. 
Um, so they actually have fit models that are shorter, so they can t make sure the clothes are slightly shorter in arm length and so-and-so. So I'm not sure if that is a thing across, you know, everywhere. Different countries. But obviously that needs to happen because different nationalities are different sizes. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's just trying to understand how that would work. I mean, there's a thing called vanity sizing, and I'm fully behind this. People will be more prone to buy a garment if the size on the label is small. Um, so st you, apparently, apparently, if you're feeling good about yourself and you have more serotonin, you're like, yeah, and your self-esteem is great because you, you see that size saying it's a small, it's a medium or whatever, you're more likely to purchase. So sizes are actually changing, apparently. Wow. So, you know, now a UK 10 or a UK 8 is now a UK 10 because what is the UK national size? A 16 or an 18? 16. Yeah, so it's all about vanity sizing. So brands are starting to play on this and say, actually, we want to make our consumers feel good that they can get into a smaller size. I think that's me at the moment. I have to say, I think maybe, obviously, I've lost some weight shredding for the wedding, but... I definitely find myself purchasing smalls now. I've gone from and that you feel amazing. Oh, God. And you go back when to I that know. Store. Yes, thank you. Small yeah, yeah, order yeah. that, and it comes and it fits absolutely incredible. I, you know what? I actually, oh yeah, I'm yeah, all about it's this happening funny. because I'm I, sizing. if I go on to Zara and if you click your size, it says tell me my size, and it always tells me that I'm a medium. But then if I order a medium, I'm like this is too big, and I end up getting a small or an extra small. There's no consistency, but I'm like, oh, I'm a small, I'm an yes. extra small. So it's that vanity sizing thing. But at the same time, it's not okay because then I then go into Mango or H&M or whatever and I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. And mm -hmm. then you start to think, God, have I put on weight? Have I changed? What's going on? I can't wear this brand. And it's almost like if you don't fit into that size, you're like, well, I don't, wanna, I don't fit in your store, but I fit into your store. Yeah. You know? Uh, I just, yeah, I think, I just don't understand why work hasn't been done around this. Why can't brands but who come would together? regulate it? Who, who is in charge? Maybe we should. This? Maybe the fashion-demic <laughs> should regulate sizing across the But uh, there industry. needs to be something, because when you think about in the buying industry, you tend to fit on a model that's your most popular size. Yeah. So say your brand is most popular size is a 10, you'll get a fit model that's a size 10, and the rest you might fit to a mannequin. Yeah. So those mannequins are manufactured to all be the same size. So why aren't brands fitting to those mannequins? Why, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just confusing. There's lots of questions that we can ask, isn't there? Yeah, so if you do know the answer to this question, please message us because we would love to know more about this. I think it's so interesting. Um, and I do think there needs to be a serious change here um, to under and to understand why the high street is like this. But I guess it's the same for designer i mean god if i try on a designer cl clothing i am not my size i have to go a lot bigger yeah you know and why is that though what, again know. why is it different between know. a designer brand to a, a high street and more accessible brand um, you know because to some people that that designer is completely accessible and they'll buy it on a regular basis so it can be affecting them as well but yeah i think like i said it'd be really good if we could have someone um, on the podcast that knows a little bit more you know it'd be really great to speak to alice um laura's yes. friend who works for cars as well to understand a little bit more about that sizing um because it's an ongoing conversation. This is a conversation that we've been having, like you said, for years and years and sizing is changing and it's not being regulated. Mm. So I think it's going to be... But I think there's also a... Going back to sustainability here, oh, Of guys. course she is. But there's also a sustainability issue here because think of the return rates. You know, I've always said my return rates by 90%. Shocking. But I, I... Yeah, I'm ridiculous. But at the same time, if things fitted me to my size, 
I wouldn't need to return things. Or, like, I bought um, a cardboard set yesterday from Mango, and I wasn't sure what size I was, so I bought both. Now, I shouldn't have to do that. No, you shouldn't. Like, it sh I should just be able to know my size, not just know my size in that brand. Um, but I posted this on Instagram a couple of weeks ago about nostalgia and how in marketing and buying, we're almost reverting back. And I think we will revert back maybe more so to tailored stuff because if you think about something, when you buy an item of clothing, it never fits you absolutely no. perfectly. And I guess, especially fast fashion brands, things are a little bit, I guess, baggier, um, looser. It's quite on trend at the moment anyway to have oversized T-shirts. Thank t goodness. T-shirt dresses, <laughs> wrap dresses. You know, that's a really good way of getting it, like, to fit you how you want it. So the only way to get things to perfectly fit you is to go back to post, you know, pre-World War One when mm -hmm. things were tailored and you did make things yourself. And I think I've seen a lot of people, um, our friend Mike, who's on the next podcast, um, he makes his own shackets. You know, there's things like that that people are doing. And it's the same that we're seeing... Um, old-fashioned supermarkets opening up where you have cereal dispensers and things like that. Polaroid cameras are coming back. Love you know, it's Polaroid. all that nostalgia stuff. And it's it's interesting to see how, we always say how fashion follows a cycle and things come back around. But I really think, especially because of COVID, we're looking at things, you know, in the olden days, we're doing more gardening. You know, younger people are gardening. Younger people are making their clothes. Younger people, like... This sounds really, really lame, but I like to do like, like I make my friends baby blankets when they have a baby and I sit and do that because I find it quite therapeutic. Sounds so goddamn old and boring, but it's things like that, that we like to make things, we like to bake, we like to cook and we're reverting back. And I think that's really interesting to see how fashion may change in the future. Yeah. People might start making their own clothes and doing things like that. So... Yeah. Who knows? I, I, I think a brand that I think does it quite well is ASOS. I do love it when I buy something from ASOS because they have, they've got all my details in terms of my, my weight, my height, all those things I'm sure a lot of other people have. And I love that it adapts to every brand. Obviously, yes. as ASOS sells so it's many brands. It's easier, isn't it? Yeah, it will recommend the size in that brand. Yeah. So whether I'm buying something from New Look off ASOS or, I don't know, I'm trying to think of another brand off the top of my head, um, it will change that based on what yeah. the brand is. And I think that's a really nice way... Um, you know, and but not all brands will have that, and but, you can't but, compare across different brands unless no, it's a site like we that. We are a consumerism where we want things right now, and we want to be able to go on ASOS and shop any brand and know exactly that's going to fit us, and we're going to get it the next day because we pay for the premium delivery and boom. Yeah, we do. You know, we don't want to be returning stuff and waiting for things to come in a different size and changing it, swapping it, exchanging it, blah, blah, blah. We want things really quickly. I think so we could do this. I think that's great that ASOS do that. Yeah, I think um, there's, there's some work to be done. Maybe there should be like some kind of overall site that you could put all your... Maybe this is a business idea, Lord. Put all your size and all your details right, we've in. we've got to copyright this yeah, right now. It, that's it. And we can map all these different brands and work out the size in. Yes, boom. because you can do that. I don't know if anybody knows this. You can do that with foundation. So I can't remember the website, but... It, you just put in what foundation you wear and it tells you all the other different brands in, in your shade. Oh, I love because that. Because at the moment, I wear double wear, um, going completely off tangent, but I struggle with acne. And the reason why I need to swap my double wear is because it's non It's not non-commodogenic, so therefore it's not good for, for, like, it clogs your pores and blah, blah, blah. So I want to swap to NARS, who are non-commodogenic. However, I don't know what shade I am, but this website tells me what 
look what shade I am. So I think that's really, really clever thing to I do. Think, oh, yeah, that's it. We should copyright that. Fashionemics. Yeah, that's ours. Boom, thanks. Done. Okay, everybody, we are so excited to announce our beautiful, lovely, special guest, Rosie Butcher, who is a fashion um, portrait photographer and also an influencer. You can check her out, Rosie Butcher, online. Hello, Rosie. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really good, thank you. It's so good to have you on. I'm really, yes. really, really excited. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yay. Um, <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about you, what you do with your career, uh, maybe how you got there? Um, yeah, of course. So um, I, as you said, I'm a photographer and um, more, re more recently in the last few years, a blogger as well. So um, I started off doing photography. I started at uni, uh, not a uni, at college um, and just fell in love with it and then went on to do it at uni. And then after uni, I would move down to London to assist uh, photographers and then went freelance um, and then eventually moved back up to Manchester where I had actually studied um and then yeah love it that's love it that's um, me i guess this podcast we're trying to really focus on women empowerment and mental health um and obviously there's recently been a rising trend in positive body image with a real focus on women and um i guess showing real women do you think as a photographer you've changed your approach over the years or seen um people that you find inspiring change their approach um, maybe limiting retouching, editing, that type of thing? Um, I've definitely seen, um, I think, a change in how much is retouched. Um, it's kind of, I don't, I don't feel like that kind of completely perfectly clear skin is necessarily what you see on all the campaigns now, although yeah. it's still very heavily um, edited. Um, personally, I've never actually been much of a retoucher. Like I, even even when I was in college and stuff, like I've never desired to kind of get that really super clean edited effect I've always loved the look of actual just real skin um I feel like so, you really focus on lighting when I look at your images um from the work that you do I always think the lighting is so beautiful and looks really natural oh, thank you thank you yeah there's I definitely there's definitely a very heavy theme of naturalness to my work yeah um it's just something I've always kind of a aspired to achieve like just a natural look and obviously there's just when you have a makeup artist on set and stuff there's just so much you can do in mm. camera rather than kind of heavily retouch in post um that for me it's always just been so important to get it right in camera um you know I might remove the odd spot here and there or things like that but I've never I've never like retouched someone's body shape or um you know full-on yeah. edited their skin to look like something it wasn't on the day. Do you think the pandemic is potentially having um, an effect on kind of how we view women? I'm just wondering, you know, it's, I feel it's completely more acceptable to not wear so much makeup. Definitely. And, and, you know, I, there's some days, apart from when I'm doing a lecture, there's some days, well, most days of the week, I don't wear makeup. And I don't know whether the, like, the pandemic has maybe influenced that um, in terms of just what, what we see as real and acceptable now. What do you think? Yeah, we've probably just all got used to ourselves a little bit less with less makeup <laughs> on. And think, yeah, I remember like cause about four years ago, I stopped wearing foundation. And at first I thought, oh, oh my gosh, I, I just envy I hated, you so much. Me too. I hated myself without it. Like I, was, I just thought I looked ill. Um, but now I've got used skin. to it when I do. 
But this, I think it's since I've stopped wearing foundation because the reason oh. I stopped wearing it was because I was getting really bad skin. Um, and it was just one thing that I was putting on that I was like, I'm covering my whole face in this stuff. Mm. Um, and I want to stop. So I, I personally just tried my hardest not to wear it. And, that, and now when I, if I ever do try it and I think, oh gosh, you know what? I think I need a bit of extra help today. <laughs> I don't like how it looks. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of, it's what you get used to. Like, I think if, um, you know, all the magazines and everyone online stopped wearing makeup and things, we would just think it's normal. I really um, respect oh, Alicia Keys. She doesn't wear any makeup, she I don't doesn't, think, for performances she? or anything. And I think she looks so radiant. And I think it's so inspiring. And it would be lovely if more people kind of felt that comfortable um, but again, if we saw that everywhere, I think everyone would feel more comfortable it doing it. But it's almost, because we're so used to seeing it'd be more socially heavily acceptable. made up. Yeah, the norm. I mean, I remember when you did a blog post uh, probably a couple of months ago now, and it was you discussing Instagram filters. And I remember reading it and listening to you, and like almost taking a step back and thinking, "God, I use Instagram filters. Why? Why am I doing it?" And I came to the conclusion that I was only doing it because I was concerned about people's perception of me, not because it made me feel better, but because I didn't think, I guess, I was enough to look that way without a filter. So I, I loved that you did that. And then I also remember that I then sent you a picture of me with the male filter on. <laughs> Which, you know, those are funny, but I think it's quite interesting the way that you were so honest and said, you know what, it's not okay that we are in this type of generation in society where we always put these filters on and I've noticed that you never do that. I really wish you'd uh, sent me this blog link before I paid £30 a year to Facetune. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Laura, what a great friend. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I think, yeah, for me, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful that I do feel comfortable in my own skin. Um, so, yeah, I've never felt the need to use filters and stuff you know when I see people using them I do occasionally try it just to see what it looks like and I do sometimes think oh my gosh you look so much better like that like oh if you just had a nose job or you know if you just but had blue eyes but that's the problem with but that filters. is the problem yeah Absolutely. and it's such a slippery it's such a slippery slope um and I actually think it's just so dangerous how accessible um they are now to everybody and how yeah. much you know before you know like say 20 years ago it's probably well <laughs> even less than that 10 years ago it was only professional you know um retouchers or video editors that could probably change change that and had the function to be able yeah. to to do that whereas now it's accessible to everyone at the click of a button and they can literally change themselves to how they think they should look based on how other people think they should look and they're editing themselves and it's just this everyone will end up looking the same and it's it, it's really sad, everyone, isn't it? Everyone's, yeah, everyone's self-esteem will just be yeah. so much lower because they'll see themselves thinking that they look better. Yeah, I just think it's you know so dangerous that people have like this this editing tool at at their fingertips, and they are basically edit, editing themselves to make themselves look like their perception of beautiful but their perception of beautiful is only that because they've seen other people do that yes. too so it's just, a that makes sense. just a vicious cycle yeah um, especially the, the video editing apps now that I'm you know a lot of celebrities are being called out for using because you can kind of see the, see the glitches and I just think oh I haven't oh, seen those so bad I haven't seen that I need to look at that I'll send you some links yes please <laughs> I'd like to have a nosy um leads me on to my second question really because obviously we're talking about filters um 
which ties in well with social media. But you recently opened up about your mental health and how you reached out for help. But do you feel in terms of, I guess, the filters and everything that social media are doing enough to support people with their mental health, body image, body positivity and all those type of things? Um, well, I think after the conversation we've just had, I guess the first thing would be no, because, yeah. you know, they should probably ban these beauty, you know, fun filters are fine. You know, if you want to add butterflies to your picture or Turn yourself things into like a that, it's not or... going to really, aff- <laughs> it, yeah, it's not, it's not going to affect your self-esteem. But I think the ones that are kind of called, you know, cute, pretty face or cute freckles or things like that, I just don't think that is... In any way, good for anyone. (laughs) No, I completely Um, agree. I just think it's so damaging. And it's just giving people false ideation of what's socially acceptable and what what we should look like. I mean, we should be... We've spoken about this before, haven't we, Sophie, on the second podcast um, with Lounge Underwear, saying that we should be aspiring to be people that are inspirational and doing things for the better. But instead, we're trying to follow people that are... Um, I guess, heavily edited, have had cosmetic surgery, have, you know, injected things into their faces and all these things when it shouldn't be that way and that shouldn't be what people look up to. Yeah, I mean, I saw a post um, a few weeks ago that I think, I can't remember who it was. I'm just going to use the Kardashians as a... (laughs) Oh, my favourite topic. It it was someone like... Sarcasm. Like Kim Kardashian and then... And it was like she'd won an award or something like that. And then Boring. next to it was an astro- <laughs> a, f- a female astronaut who had also won an yes. award. But you had seen none of nothing about the astronaut in the press or on social media or anything. And it was kind of like out of the two people, who would you, Is most who you really want to look up to? Yeah. And obviously you would just think, oh, the, like, the astronaut is the coolest... <laughs> kind of like I would love to have been in a conversation with her whereas Absolutely. a lot of people would probably turn to kind of a more popular reality tv star but I think people are actually starting to question that and be more and more aware of that aren't they as to who who are they being influenced by and do they mm. want to be influenced by these people I've never bought into the Kardashians never I've I, I, I did a lecture many years ago when um, oh god oh I did it. no I'm not gonna say it I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna say it but I did a lecture about kind of the timeline of influence start you know starting with people like Madonna and Princess Diana and all these like amazing fashion influencers just to open my students eyes to actually what an influencer is because mm. I don't see the only thing I believe the Kardashians have done well in terms of like body image and positivities is make curves beautiful that's the only thing i am thankful for it's with not the real curves though is it well it's there's not. all that i've never watched the episode where she has a scan on a bum and all that jazz but at least it's <laughs> kind of moved away from that very like, tall stick thin yeah I you mean, know, as to what's beautiful but that is my only thanks for you know to the kardashians i much prefer yeah people that will speak honestly about you know empowerment or mental health or educate people I just think that's a really important conversation that we've kind of already had haven't we Laura through the podcast but I think to add to that I think the 90s and noughties models and celebrities were glamorized by being a size zero weren't they where now you know that was a very unrealistic expectation of what is beautiful where now I think society and especially in the fashion industry, we're using plus-size models, we're using people from different ethnic backgrounds, all shapes and sizes, um, and I think that's what we want to see more of, and I think Absolutely. that's what the consumer wants. They, they want realism. Um, 
But what do you think, or what, what would you say is the key challenge with inclusion within the fashion industry that you may see within your line of work? Within, within my line of work, I guess because I've, I've been work like I've, my work at the moment is solely really working with very small independent um, designers. So I, I probably don't really see that much of a challenge with it at the moment. But I think in, in regards to kind of like the bigger um, fashion houses and things like that, maybe from more of a blogging point of view, I yeah. think there definitely needs to be just more the the biggest challenge and the thing that needs to change is the representation inside the companies um kind of from you know designers all the way up to ceos i think there needs to be just so much more inclusion um and such a wider range of representation within these brands so that it eventually then filters out into what the consumers see because i think you know you well i've read a lot of the board members at some of these you know huge big fashion companies that all, all these girls are, are buying from are mainly like white males yeah whereas actually if you know you had a range of people on these boards making these big decisions and deciding what get what goes out and what's get what get what gets put out there you would see a completely different um pro end product I completely agree, and I'm all that. for that. I, I think you know a lot of brands have been called out on social media for mm. this, haven't they? For being completely hypocritical. A lot of brands that are posting for about Black Lives Matter, for example. But then, like you said, if you look at their actual uh, board, white males, there's yeah. no actual variety in the brand themselves. So how can they be genuinely posting and and, and kind of uh, communicating, you know, any kind of purpose-driven marketing and things like that? Which actually brings me on very, very nicely to. How do you think the fashion industry responds to these issues? I think we started to touch on this, you know, a little bit because I'm very sceptical that the fashion industry responds out of kind of genuine concern um, and, and we've got genuine reason to because um, I, I do feel that sometimes brands jump on the bandwagon of things not through a way of being genuine but, all, but kind of using that conversation as a marketing ploy and, and you know, how, what, what are your opinions on how genuine these brands are? Um, so I obviously not every brand um, is like this. I think there are no. brands out there generally trying to do good and trying to make a change and like taking a good look at themselves. Um, but a majority, I would say, are it's just a marketing ploy. Mm. Like who needs to buy another T-shirt with a slogan on it on it with just whatever is the latest national concern? Yeah, um, I love that plenty of other ways they can find to help the causes that they say they are helping by donating you know 10% of the sales of this one t-shirt it's just that really what's the word grapes grapes my grain what's, <laughs> what's the word like it just really irritates me um I completely agree it is a, a way of advertising um and promoting you know it's almost about shouting out look at me look at me look at the amazing things that I'm doing where really it should just be in your day-to-day -day. yeah I think one of one of the best brands I've actually seen I think came from a really genuine place sorry I, again I am not sponsored by in the style but I just I think what some of they what some things they do are brilliant when they did the collection following um the death of Caroline Flack and that was 100% of the sales of, of that went to charity yeah I don't mind it when it is slogan clothing like that when the 100% of the profits do yeah. if they were taking profits themselves and I completely disagree with it um, I guess is that more raising awareness about the cause and getting people talking yeah um, 
as a campaign, but then I see what Rosie's saying about, you know, we shouldn't have to put it on a t-shirt for these very things true. to make very, very these true. things to, you know, for the movement to happen. I think with my problem with that is that like ultimately you're just making more waste and from like a more sustainable yes. kind of point of view, it's like, why do you need to put that on a t-shirt? Can you not just use the stuff, the collection you've already got and market it towards that or, you know, just do a campaign surrounding it and work with, I don't know, you know, say with that, like a, a mental health advocate instead, something like that, instead of yes. having a t-shirt or an item of clothes which represents that just use it as your brand and people will you know people um associate with that through your campaign not necessarily through the clothes that you are selling i'm 100 percent backing this so, so me and sophie often have many debates because she's very fast fashion and i'm not so this is really good and i guess it's like when you buy into <laughs> a christmas jumper you're going to wear it for a couple of days and then yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm sat here realising that I am this kind of person. <laughs> How many T-shirts and sweaters have I got on with, like, dog quotes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you like dog yeah. quotes, then that's fine. <laughs> if, if you, you know, if you're wearing those dog, dog quote T-shirts all the time. <laughs> my la is. My, la is. my latest purchase, what was it? Mur murder documentaries and chill or oh, something like that. Oh, no, yeah. murder documentaries in a loungewear. I saw it last night, I sent it to Laura. Like, that is my next Logan jumper. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, if that's what you're into and you, 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 you buy that and that gives you joy then why not like everyone deserves to buy what they want but I think it's just for me it's the going back to the kind of how they respond to how fashion brands respond to issues I just think mm. yeah I almost feel within the style that it was it was almost like which brand could do it the quickest regarding Caroline Flack which one could bring out the collection to show support Ooh. um and obviously they are fast fashion so they were boom pictures Straight to their supplier it. you know have it on the online within a week. Just to say, I did buy the t-shirt. Did you? I did. I do wear it. I love it. Okay, but how I don't actually know what t-shirt they did. I'm going to have to Google. Oh, it. I can't remember the quote. No, it was about be being kind. kind. Yeah, just, yeah, it be was kind. Kind. I um, I did actually wear it to one of my lectures when we were allowed in the building. But I, I don't think that <laughs> phrase would necessarily date because it is. You yeah, know. exactly. I still have mine. I still wear it. Good, but no, I, I'm, I, I completely agree with you, Rosie, actually, because I, I am very sceptical. I am a sceptical shopper and I am very sceptical of what brands put out there. And maybe it's my PR background, but I kind of really see through campaigns and stuff. Um, you know, I sound like I don't, but I do. Um, so yeah. I think it is. And it's, think... it's, 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 it, it, are they genuinely going through with supporting some of these causes? Or like you said, is it just to sell a product and to make people think that's what they're they really are supporting but I think like people are seeing through it so actually I think it, it's going to mm. start to backfire I guess the real way to see is if they continue continue to support those yes um charities in different ways throughout the, their whole um I don't know what's it called not career whatever it's called the brand's reign I yeah don't know, the, while I, the brand's around I agree if with that they're, if they're continuing continually support the same issues then you know they mean it. But if, yes. you know, it's there for a month and then next year it's in, or next month it's a different cause, it's, it doesn't look as genuine. Yeah, funny you say that, actually. One of the brands that I kind of noticed did that and it quite upset me because I got so much PR and press was uh, a couple of years ago now, the Top Man uh, Ludacris campaign. I think it was for oh, Calm, yes. which was amazing. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Calm's a fantastic charity. And I mean it from the, from the perspective of the fashion brand. Nothing more came from that. 
Uh, and that we, was a typical, that was just a standard PR campaign, wasn't it? To drive sales, yeah, to get people to the website, Yeah, and I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did have some amazing initial impact for Calm. But a brand like that, with the audience it had, could have continued that relationship mm. um, a lot more. Uh, you know, a, a great conversation to have around male mental health and, and a fantastic, fantastic charity. But I think that's probably just the brand as, as top man. I think uh, one of the good positive things about uh, social media and mental health is that although maybe the actual platforms themselves aren't doing as much as they could, um, I think there is just so many more um, people accessible online to follow who are mental health advocates and, you know, you can have th- you can follow therapists and they can be giving you advice. And, you know, even if it's just, um, you know, to to take a deep breath or to... Um, relax your tongue from the top of your mouth which I always find I do and I'm holding so much tension it's even if something like that just appears on your feed it can really help your day or you know there's just for people that maybe want to reach out and are scared to I think there's just so much more ready available online on social media and you can create such a positive space depending on who you follow and um kind of what what you're looking for like I know my algorithm for sure is 100% just basically about wellness and therapists now oh that must which... be so refreshing though to flick through your feed and see all those things yeah I need an Instagram detox I yeah, think Rob's I think always telling do. me Rob always looks do. at my phone he says right you need to unfollow all of these people they're making you depressed so I think that's yeah. Brilliant. That's the way it should Mine's be. Mine's just all dogs and wedding <laughs> stuff, so I'm I'm quite cool about that. But I think it's, I think that's really important that social media is promoted as a, or a kind of looked at as a positive space where it can be. And I know there's a charity in America, an organisation called the Centre of Humane Technology. And I think they were featured on the one of my students told me about them actually. They were featured on the Social Dilemma program that was on Netflix. Um, and it's a, an organisation. I think it's a charity in America, and they they really look and push. Instagram and other social media sites to be kind of more um, considerate of mental health and people's usage and stuff like that. So um, I think they've uh, been able to like, help introduce like time caps on how much you're online and they kind of really push for those kind of things. So I think it's, yeah, I think it is, it's social media isn't going away, but it's about using it as a really positive space, as you said, which is, um, which is really kind of refreshing to hear. Cause I'm, mm. I'm very opposite to Laura. I, I don't I probably do follow some fashion influencers, but I don't ever see them because I don't ever engage. Yeah. I think the yeah. whole feed is influencers and brands and fashion and things. Oh my, just French bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to know from an influencer perspective, um, Rosie, do, do, are you ever, are you mindful of the brands that you work with them in terms of what they stand for and their maybe sustainable policies or in women empowerment policies and all these types of things? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's like because I think from the start, I've always been very aware of this and very conscious of it because it was, it kind of came around as a second. Well, it started off as a hobby on the side of photography, and yeah. then it's kind of uh, like I've never in in like oh, hang on, let me get my words straight. <laughs> Photography has always been my primary income. Yes. So I was never under pressure to have to make money and say yes to jobs that I didn't want to do through social Mm -hmm. media. So I've always been able to be very, very selective with who I want to work with. Um, And, you know, I, you know, there are brands that I probably know don't do 100% the best they could, but there might be other aspects of their, of that brand that I like if you know what I mean. So yeah. I'm, I'm always very aware and I always do my research and I kind of know who I'm representing and what they stand for and 
Yeah, that's that's like one of the things that's just so important to me. I think that's why... I would also never promote anything that I didn't believe in or didn't trust or didn't generally would recommend to my friends. Yeah, I think just, that's why that your sense. followers love you so much and why you've built up such a strong community because I'm very conscious following you that you're very good at recycling product and, and saying, you know, this is from last year. or and, and I love that because I know that you are scent garments, but you choose what you like and you choose what you stand for. And you're very open yeah. to say, you know, I am a photographer. That is my main role, my main passion. Um, so I think that's what your followers enjoy is that kind of sense of community I love that. I think that's really refreshing, isn't it? It's really refreshing when there's so much conversation around trust and influencers and, you know, and some influencers give other influencers a really bad name. So it's really, it's really refreshing to see what you do um, and how you style and how you speak to your community. Absolutely. I just, I just think it's kind of, you know, you've just got to think of everyone as friends and, you know, I wouldn't want someone to spend their hard, hard-earned cash on something oh, that I know is going to fall apart. Like I would rather yeah. someone buy something and be like, "Wow, it's that's got longevity," so good. and it would just stay in their wardrobes for years to come. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely more about um, the dur- durability of clothing rather than kind of just instantly jumping on a trend. Yeah. Yeah, I think we learn that as we get older as well, to like to not follow a trend and, and have your own style. And I think you're very, you obviously have a very clear style of, you know what suits your body, you know what you like, you mix vintage pieces um, with things, you know, from brands that you are really passionate about. Um, so that's I really think, clear. I think it's laziness as well. Like if you know something fits and looks good, <laughs> why would you try, yeah, why would you wear something else? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, our final question to you is what shoot um, are you most proud of within the work that you've done? So I found this, this question really hard because I feel like I've had such a quiet year that it, it's kind of, I've really been focusing myself on what I have haven't done which is terrible and I know oh, I've no. seen so many things online COVID that says you shouldn't yeah that's lockdown I, yeah it's just lockdown it's just the year it is um but I think one of my most proudest shoots recently is I've been working with um a small brand and they've recent um the girl who owns it Chelsea she makes everything herself and she we shot a, a few months ago and then she was approached by Vogue to <gasps> um, be featured um in one of well two of their issues so we quickly shot a summer shoot for her and yeah I just I just I really like the shoot it was a great team and I'm just I just think it's lovely that she's being included in Vogue and it was just yeah it was really exciting I love that we're shouting about small brands I think that's becoming more and more obvious now that we especially in lockdown you know I think it was the whole kind of like fight or flight people were setting up new businesses people were supporting local businesses smaller businesses to kind of rally around together so I love that Vogue have jumped on that and supporting her that's fantastic yeah I just thought it was I just thought it was really nice and I just know she was so excited and who wouldn't um, be yeah I know I was like wow (laughs) um so yeah it was yeah I think that's that's one of my favourite shoots recently, definitely. Well, thank you so, so much for um, joining us on our podcast today, Rosie. We've absolutely loved it. And we have. for all our listeners, please um, give Rosie a follow at Rosie Ann Butcher on Instagram. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having thank me. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, bye. So our like to know today is the fantastic UK-based charity, 
the Girls' Network. So the Girls' Network believe that no girl's future should be limited by her background, gender or parental income. And what they do is they ask people in industry to become a mentor um, and they match you with a girl between the age of 14 and 19. Now I came across this charity, um, I guess last summer really, because my friend was saying that she was involved in it and I just found it so inspiring and so interesting and a really lovely way to give back. Of course, it's slightly younger than students that Sophie and I teach, but I think that's also really nice to kind of broaden your your access um, and a really nice way to help others because, you know, 14 to 19 year olds, they're at that age in their life where they're picking what GCSEs they want to do, what colleges they want to apply to. And, and I guess picking their their lifelong career, you know, thinking about what they really want to, to study and um, training. So, you know, that really drew me in. Um, and the stats were really strong about, you know, uh, because, you know, if there's a certain girl from an underprivileged background, they're less likely to get um, high grades at GCSE. And I thought, God, this is why are we living in a, in a generation where people are not achieving their goals and becoming who they want to be simply because of their, you know, their, their background, um, their gender. You know, we, all, we, we spoke about previously about gender equality. Um, so I think it's really important that this charity are, you know, making ways in this area. Um, and that's why I signed up last year to become a mentor. And I was partnered with a girl that wanted to be um, within fashion that wanted to set up her own brand. Um, you can sign up to this charity on the website. It's completely um, free to do. Um, you don't just have to be in the fashion industry. You could be a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, physiotherapist, a nurse, um, visual merchandiser, whatever it is that you do, um, there will be somebody that would like to go into that career. So I think it's a great opportunity um, and some, a wonderful thing to get involved in. Yeah, I'm still yet to do my application, but I'm definitely something um, I'm interested in doing. And like you said, it's like working with people that are younger, you know, people that are facing the decisions of GCSEs. God, remember when we chose our GCSE? What a big decision. Is it this? Is it this? Where's this going to take us? And I think actually to to have that access, um, uh, you know, and have a mentor at that age, you know. So I think at a younger age, the fashion industry just seems like really aspirational and you can't, you can't even imagine working in the fashion industry. It seems like that far away. And quite daunting because there's so many bits to it. Yeah, and I think you don't know enough about the fashion industry specifically when you're doing GCSEs. I most definitely didn't. The only careers I thought existed in fashion when I was, was at that kind of age was fashion design. Yeah, same, same. Um, and that was what was really great, you know, going and to look at universities and colleges and all that and learn about and, and learn about those roles. So I think, you know, if you're someone maybe from, like you said, an underprivileged background and you know you're... I mean, I hate the term passionate about, uh, passion for fashion, just cringes me out. But, you know, if you know you love clothing and those kind of things, but uh, you can't see a way in, I think it'd be great to have you know, mm. lots of people that work in fashion. Obviously, we're a fashion podcast, so we're going to, you know, say to all old people that are working in fashion, you know, you know come and support and see what you can do um, for, for the youngsters that want to, to go in um, and break the mould in the fashion industry. But it's not, it's not knowing what's out there. It's not potentially having the connections or, you know, your parents might not know somebody that knows somebody, you know. So I think this is a great charity that gives people the opportunity to talk to others, you know. We always say to our students, just connect with somebody on LinkedIn, have a phone call with somebody. It's not just about work experience. It's just having chats with different people to understand what they do. And I think the best thing about being a mentor is you're helping them to understand what is the right path for them. 
You know, one week it could be, let's look at your CV, let's create a CV together. Um, one week it's like, let me just tell you about marketing or let me just tell you about buying. Um, it could be me, I mean, I went in as a guest on my friend's mentor meeting and, and told her about how to apply for, for university and what university's like because she didn't know and nobody in her family had been to university yet. So she didn't have that knowledge. So it was just having a nice casual chat where I think when you go to speak to, say, a careers advisor, it's very, it feels quite formal where this is just a really casual, friendly chat where you build up a connection with somebody and you have those monthly meetings, you get to know each other and you build that trust and you build that relationship. And I think that's what we need more of it's all about you know how we spoke about um, on the last episode about female empowerment gender equality and having all of that together and I think that's what makes this charity brilliant and so current in today's times yeah I love the fact as well it kind of creeps up into those university age as well you said up to 19 yeah. didn't you yeah, yeah yeah so it might be you're in your first year of university uh you know you like you said you you know might not have had anyone in your family go to university university is a whole new thing maybe um students themselves within their first year and they're still figuring out what they want to do maybe that's something that you know is an extra thing that they can access through um, the girls network um, I can't wait so I can uh, just find a, five minutes just to do my application forms I'm really eager to help but something really uh, great about volunteering as well as it yeah um, yeah it feels it's you got that feel good factor you know um, and it ties in really well with our podcast our next podcast which is about fashion education so please tune in please don't forget you can listen to this episode and lots of other Brum Radio podcasts on the Brum Radio podcast channel at brumradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts If you've enjoyed this podcast today, don't forget to rate and review us. We would really love your support and feedback. Also make sure you subscribe or follow us so the next episode of The Fashademics gets to you automatically. You can also find us on Instagram at Fashademics. Okie dokie then, we'll get going then, shall we? Also, can you hear us through speakers in there, please? Oh, pretty damn cool. Isn't that? Do I sound sexy? Pardon? Thank you for listening to this Brum Radio podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your podcast app.